well, we're going to be wrapping up our little two-part New Year's series this morning. Last Sunday, we learned about biblical memorials, and we looked back over 2016 and celebrated some of the things that God had done throughout the year. Um, the testimonies uh, that we listened to, I think, were just incredibly encouraging. I was just so encouraged to listen to roughly six of our, of our own here just testify to the things that God had done in their lives, to the things that they had seen Him do. And, and it's just, it's really neat to, uh, to be able to, to do that once in a while. And as I said, I, I want to try to do that at the turn of every year so we can just, just take a moment to pause because life is so fast-paced and ministry is fast-paced. And it's like we need to just stop and look back and see the things that God did and hear from God's people. So I was very, very encouraged um, last Sunday and even throughout the week as I reflected on some of the things that our, our testimony givers, our testifiers shared. This morning we're going to uh, spend a little time looking forward Okay, so last week we looked back. This week we're going to be looking forward to 2017, our, our new year. And uh, how many of you are going to mess up writing out the date for the next three months? You're going to continue to write 2016. I've already done it twice. So, um, but we're going to be taking a little bit of time just to, to maybe look forward, to cast a little bit of vision, um, and maybe to set some goals for the new year as a church. I have basically three resolutions that I'm going to, to identify and describe. Um, I usually don't play the resolution game every year, you know, uh, but I, I don't think it's a bad idea. And I don't think it's a bad idea to play the re resolution game if you set resolutions. I just know that usually by week two, I've already disqualified myself. But I think it's a good thing to kind of prayerfully look forward and to ask God, what would you have me do this year or what should my focus be? And, you know, and so I have three resolutions that I'm going to identify and describe. And, and I think that these are maybe, for me personally, the primary things that God wants me to focus on. And I believe as the pastor of this church, as an elder of this church, that it's kind of the focus for our church for the next year. So I think uh, it's a good idea to pray before we get into this stuff. Lord, um, we just humbly come before you and acknowledge your presence and acknowledge your goodness. And I, I keep seeing people post on Facebook and um, just how bad of a year 2016 was. And I don't know, I guess I got to disagree, especially after hearing those testimonies last week. I just think that your goodness and grace is shown throughout every year. And uh, I guess... It's true that we go through tough things and hard things each year, but I don't think that that renders an entire year bad or useless. And so um, I don't think that that should be in the Christian's mind that, uh, you know, that you are actively working and, and showing us your grace and, and growing us and making us more and more like Jesus each year. And so I think each year should be celebrated. doesn't mean we don't mourn the things that are hard but um, that we do celebrate, too, your presence and goodness. And so uh, we're looking to the next year here. And we can't look very far, and I don't think it's wise to try to lay out an entire calendar for the whole year. Um, and that's not at all what we're going to do. But it's a good idea, Lord, to, to prayerfully seek you and to seek wisdom and to, to reflect back on things that maybe we should have done or maybe we should have had a different focus at one point or whatever. So just speak to us today from your word and... Uh, just give us your wisdom and the truth and more and more and more of your grace and your goodness. And so may um, you be honored and glorified during this time and through the whole service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is going to be like really, really simple and more topical. I'll give you the first resolution. Resolution number one would be God wants us to gather in 2017. I've got like three G's, and, and the reason why I have that is because I think it'll be easy for us to, easier for us to remember and to reflect on. So the first G would be gather. So God wants us to gather in 2017. And, and this, um, I kind of tied it to the Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 text, which kind of speaks about 
gathering, and, and Paul read it earlier. It just, again, it says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. You know, the idea of gathering, uh, part of it has to do with stirring one another up, encouraging one another uh, to love and good works. And then it says, not neglecting to meet together, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So apparently when when the author of this text, God, wrote it, you know, or communicated it through this earthly author, there was an issue of, of people not coming to church, not gathering with the saints. And isn't that something that, that we've all seen throughout the years and maybe even experienced ourselves? Some of us in this room have had stepped away from gathering with the church for a year or two or several months or whatever. Um, and so we've all seen this. We've all uh, probably engaged in this in, in some facet. But the truth is, is that God wants us to gather and to do it regularly and, and to make it a, a pattern. And, and part of it has to do with stirring one another up when we gather. It has to do with encouraging one another um, as the day of judgment or the day of the Lord draws near. So RHC for 2017 will offer six ways we can gather together, okay? So I've been kind of thinking through this, and these are things that we've already done in the past, but I'm just going to lay them out. Um, six ways that we can gather in 2017. Obviously, the first would be Sunday worship. That would be, I would say that when you think about your schedule each week and you think about the things that God wants you to do, you even think about gathering, make that your top priority above all other types of churchy gatherings or whatever. Some people don't come to church on Sundays because they attend a Bible study on Wednesday night and they say, that's my church. That's not corporate worship. It doesn't mean that there isn't worship happening there. But corporate worship should be thought of as the weekly gathering of the saints where they come together and engage in these various worship activities. And so I would say for us, Make the Sunday gathering a top priority for you. Make it kind of, and for me, it's kind of like the highlight of my week. It really is. Actually, it's, it's not even that. It, it is the highlight of my week, but Sunday is the first day of the week. So that's kind of how we start our week. Now, you just think about that for a moment. If you start your week on Sunday with worshiping the Lord, now that may very well dictate how the rest of your week goes. And if you are in the habit of neglecting that gathering maybe that's the reason why your weeks are so rough and hard. And, you know, seriously, I mean, we start, we, we flipped it. We're not Sabbatarian. We, we basically don't do worship on Saturdays, and some churches do because their churches are too big. But Sunday is like the starting point for your entire week. And what better way to start your week than in the presence of God and in the presence of his people, worshiping, learning, growing, fellowshipping, all the things that I'll describe in a little bit. And so it's interesting if you think about it. I think there's a connection with missing church regularly during the week and having a messy, messy, and having messy, messy weeks and a messy life, you know? So make that a top priority. Say to yourself, you know what? We are going to go to church every Sunday unless I am sick. And then at that point, that shouldn't render your whole household uh, to the point that not everyone else can go. Maybe it does. I don't know. But make it a point in 2017, and I think most people in this room do this really well, almost all of you guys. It's, it's what we do, and unless I'm sick or unless I'm out of town on vacation, you know, then be here, okay? And some of us think that, well, I've gone six times. It's time to take a break. You know, it's the mentality. I mean, it, it, and you're thinking, well, who would think that? Well, we all do at times because of our flesh. You know, if you've noticed, I usually preach about six or seven sermons, then somebody else preaches, then I come back. I just kind of built in a Sabbath kind of break for myself. But it's kind of human nature to say, well, I've gone four times in a row. It's time to take a break. Well, are you puking? No. Are you out of town on vacation? No. Are you out of town on business? No. Where has that mentality come from? Why do we think like that? I don't think it's a right way to think. So make it a goal. Man, I'm going to church every... I, we've got 52 Sundays, okay? 
And, and I'm going to try to be at all 52, but I can't help it if I've got a fever, you know. And don't, do us all a favor. Don't come down here if you have a fever, because then next weekend, six people are gone because they have fevers, and you're feeling great. You're like, man, I missed one. I, yeah, I came, I, I, I muscled through it, I'm good now, and then, you know, nine people have the plague. So stay home, you know, but make it a point, right? Another way that we can gather is this Sunday night all-church Bible study which is another gathering point where we get to build one another up and iron sharpening iron and learning and growing and fellowshipping and these things happen. This is something that we've begun to do more regularly, and we have one starting on February 5th. Sunday nights, right here in this room, 6.30 p.m. to 8. It's table setting. It's a 25-minute lesson, and then discussion and fellowship. It's really awesome. That would be secondary to Sunday morning, but it's still a very, very important thing that I think that you should try to come to. Now, I'm going to go through more, so you're going to be thinking, he wants us here every night during the week. No, that's not true. The third would be Tuesday night women's Bible study. Okay, so that's a great point, a place for gals to gather, to build one another up, for the younger gals to be ministered to by the older and vice versa, and all of these wonderful things that happen. They're growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as they study God's Word. They watch a video too. And then, you know, and they do their thing and they hang out. And that begins on January 31st. So you've got Sunday morning, you've got Sunday evening, you've got Tuesday night, which is a great way. Um, And if you do come regularly on Sunday, maybe pick up one of these things and be at it. You don't have to do all of them because you can get burned out and you can neglect your family and other responsibilities. Tuesday night men's Bible study. Now that's to be uh, decided by me. It'll I don't know if it's, it's not going to happen, it's not going to begin on January 31st with the gals, but I like to do mine with guys on Tuesday nights, so that's a great place for men to come together and kind of look at manly things and have manly discussion, you know, Tim the Tool Man, kind of a cool thing. Um, and then I want to start up again, probably um, maybe later in this first quarter, weekly or bi-weekly small groups, that is a a wonderful way to connect during the week, um, and those usually happen at someone's house. So we'll talk about that more, but that's a gathering point. And then obviously for the youth, you have Wednesday night youth group, and that's for you know junior high through high school. So that's a, a great way. So you've got six examples of how and make Sunday morning a priority and, and consider some of these other ways that we can gather and, and build one another up. It's really good. I'm telling you right now, You could be a regular attender on Sunday and be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and learning and fellowshipping and doing all these things, but adding like that Sunday night Bible study or the men's thing or the ladies thing could be incredibly impactful on your faith and walk. I don't know, it's just, I know it has to do with being in God's Word, but there's something about the smaller gathering where you have maybe just all guys or all gals or or it's co-ed on Sunday night. There's just something profound and powerful that God does in that little setting. And so, and, and many of you have not, have not taken advantage of, th- of these other gatherings. Our Bible studies tend to be fairly small. And um, so make it a point maybe to join one this year uh, and, and be a part of that. But make Sunday morning a priority, as most of you, 99% have. So resolution one, God wants us to gather. And there, those are ways that we can gather together. Resolution, resolution two, God wants us to grow in 2017. He wants us to grow. Now, here are, I would say, four ways that God desires for us to grow. Now, when I say God wants us to grow, that doesn't mean that we are growing ourselves. It really means that we are engaging in His means of grace, and He is growing us through those things. So there's no way to really grow yourself, but we don't want to be fatalistic in saying that if I just sit here and do absolutely nothing, God is going to grow my faith. No, the way that He's going to grow your faith is by you engaging in His Word, by you engaging in studies, by you engaging in prayer, by you engaging in His means of grace. So, you know, it, it doesn't happen by osmosis. You, God has said, I will grow you, and here are the means of grace that I have prescribed where you will grow. If you get into my Word regularly, if you fellowship with Brothers and sisters in the Lord, you're gonna, you'll grow when you do that. If you spend time with me in prayer, you'll grow. But if you sit there and you're inactive, you're not going to grow spiritually. So we have a part in this, but he does desire that we would grow more and become more like Jesus in 2017. 
A uh, couple of ways, four ways. God wants us to grow in grace and knowledge, but not just any old grace and knowledge as if there were any other. 2 Peter 3, 17 to 18, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with every error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, man, that is a... That is a a direct like command from the Lord that, that we need to be in this process of ever growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as opposed to being carried away by all of the goofy, goofy things that people say today and come up with. In, in fact, if you are not engaging in God's Word, you're not growing, but really you are in a way, but you're not growing in the right way. You're growing in worldly ideologies and goofy fleshly thinking and these sorts of things. And so he wants us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something right now. You want to know what's transformative in your life? It's growing in your knowledge and understanding of what Jesus Christ has done for you. That's why we emphasize at this church over and over and over his work. That's why we try to take his work and examine it to the best of our ability and the power of the Holy Spirit so we can see what he did. Because when we see what he did and when we understand what he did, we are changed. We are impacted. We are um, sanctified, if you will. And so he wants us to grow in his grace and he wants us to grow in this knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is amazing transformation that comes when we engage in God's word in these various ways and these things happen. So he does want us to grow in grace and knowledge. And I, I could have said he wants us to grow spiritually, but that's very subjective. And so growing spiritually has to do with growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at it like that, right? I didn't want to, I had growing spiritually at first, and I'm like, no, that's too subjective, and, and it's kind of foggy and weird. It's not specific. So growing in grace and knowledge. And here's another way that you grow spiritually, if you will, and it's a way that he wants us to grow in 17. He wants us to grow in love. He wants us to grow in love First uh, Thessalonians 3.12, may the Lord make you, make you increase. This, this, is, this is like Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. It's like, may the Lord, may Jesus make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And so this has the idea of growing in God's love, but even more specifically, growing in our love for one another and for all, even those outside of the body. And so very, very important. Now, if you are, and I, I would say that it, it's not 100% accurate, you know, not, I wouldn't say accurate, but it, it can be true and it can be false. But one of the ways that you know if you are growing spiritually, if you are growing in Christ-likeness, is that you're growing in love. And, and, and it's, it, it's shown by how you love one another, how you love your spouse, how you love your children, how you love your fellow believers and brothers and sisters and elders and all that. Now, I get it. These things are challenging. They're hard at times. Are they not? They are. Why are they hard? Why are they challenging? Because we're just tough people, man. We're sinners saved by grace. But one of the ways that you know that you're growing spiritually and becoming more like Jesus is that you're growing in love. And I have to say that I have probably failed in this area more than others because um, I don't always think the best things about people. I'm really good at playing the game where I have a smiley face and I say biblical things and all that. And at the same time, I'm thinking, I got daggers. You know, and, and any, can anyone, would anyone be willing and honest just to say, okay, I'm kind of, that kind of resonates with me, or, or are you really like more like Jesus than me? And that's okay. I hope you are. I mean, seriously, I, you know, I find myself not being loving towards others, not necessarily in their face, but behind their face. <laughs> Amen? Like, people just tick me off. And, and, and so every time somebody rubs me wrong or says something, it, it fires me up. It is really, I think, in some ways a test from the Lord to prove whether I'm loving or not. Because I think the loving response is, that doesn't mean you're not tempted to think certain things, because that happens. But whether you follow through with that temptation and that whole trajectory that James talks about in, in his letter, you know, that... So 
I am determined. I want to be more loving in 2017. And I think that as God continues to expose where I'm not, He's going to challenge me in those moments to help call me to love. And so, and, and I just think it's hard to love. I just do. I think, I think I'm hard to love as a person, and I think it's hard for me to love others. But man, don't we have the most incredible, insane, mind-blowing example of love in Jesus who is being beaten? And I would have shot people with my AR-15 if they'd been trying to hang me on a cross. He goes to the cross and dies. That's an expression of love. He takes endless insults and spittings and, and all of these things. And I think the greatest example, one of the greatest examples of his love is obviously the cross, but another one is just how he patiently endured his meatball disciples. Come on now, can I get a witness? If you read the Gospels, you can't help but think Peter is the dumbest man on the face of the earth. Right? Get behind me, Satan. If Jesus said that to me, I would have ran off too. I mean, you know, these guys were so dense. In fact, they didn't get the gospel until Jesus is about to ascend, and then he opens their minds, it says in Scripture. So they're with him for three, three and a half years. They're right there. Imagine spending three and a half years with the greatest disciple maker of all time and going after three and a half years, having no clue what he said. And then he opens your mind, I get it. Why are you leaving? I need you more now. Now I get it. And he leaves, and he ascends, and now he's at the right hand of the Father. And then they get it, and then the Holy Spirit comes, and then the church is born. It's amazing what happened, but it's just incredible to me. It's incredible. He is the embodiment of love, agapeo love, this selfless, sacrificing love. And I think he's calling us to grow in that area. And I think the way that we do that is by recognizing our own feebleness and failures, admitting those things, confessing those things, examining ourselves to see if we do love others the way that Christ does, or that we can, if it's a possibility, I think it is. And we're growing in the grace and knowledge too. That all is a catalyst for growing in love. If we are loved by God and we recognize and realize that, shouldn't we be great lovers of others? Shouldn't we just love other people? You know, and I get it. We're not Jesus. I hate it when people say, go out and be Jesus. Are you kidding me? I don't even get out the, I don't get through the threshold. You're telling me to be him? He's perfect. He nailed everything. Now I can try to be like him and I can set my mind and my heart on that and make that a goal, but you'll never, ever be Jesus. You know, you'll be more like him when you're resurrected, but you're not Jesus, but we can try to be like him. He is our model, if you will. So grow in love. Three, God wants us to grow in Christ-likeness that just piggybacks on all of that. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. It's like those whom God knew in advance, chose to love in advance before the creation of the world, he predestined them. His goal was to predestine them. His plan was to predestine them to the image of his son, to make them like Jesus. So the ultimate goal of salvation is to make us like Jesus. Well, what does the Father want? A bunch of weird clones walking around in heaven? No, it's not like that. He just wants us to be like Jesus. Jesus is the apple of his eye. Jesus is, is God and his only begotten son. And, he, and Jesus obeys perfectly and does all of these things perfectly and brings the Father maximum glory. He did that on earth. And, and He wants His adopted sons and daughters to be like Jesus in that regard, to have, to have the Father's um, glory and, 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 and person in mind at all times and to be consumed with Him. And that's exactly what Jesus shows us. So for those whom He, pre, he foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed, to be made in the image of His Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so this idea of growing in Christ-likeness, obviously if you're growing in love and grace and knowledge, you are becoming more and more like Jesus, but not just in the head. It's got to be in the heart and it's got to come out in action. But he wants in 2017 to make us more like Jesus, to sanctify us, because that is the ultimate goal and purpose of our salvation. We're not going to be plucking harps on clouds, like those little fat cherubs in cartoons, and they always have a cigar right? It, that's not the goal of our salvation. I, I, I'm not even sure that heaven is the goal of our salvation. The goal of our salvation from God's perspective is to make us like Jesus, who ultimately glorify Him in all things. And we get those resurrection bodies, we'll be doing it to maximum level. But He even wants us to be chipped, just to be a little bit more shaped each day 
during this life through the good, the bad, and the ugly things to be shaped and conformed a little bit more to his image because all of life is a classroom. All of life is school. And all of life has to do with sanctifying us and making us like Jesus. So we want to grow in Christ-likeness this year. You ought to just maybe make this like one of your number one goals, okay, for 2017. I started out here in January of 2017, and, and here we are in December. I want to be more like Jesus throughout that 12 months. Each week, just, Lord, reveal more of yourself to me and reveal more of myself to me and, and give me the power and strength in the Holy Spirit by your word to become a little bit more like Jesus, a greater lover of others, growing in grace and not whatever it is. Just say, I, okay, I've got 12 months here, Lord. I, I'm giving you permission and I'm, I'm in submission to you and I want to be more like Jesus. Because I tell you what would be really sad for somebody like me would be to start out at the beginning of 2017 and to end 2017 and be the same Phil. You know, and some of you might be thinking, well, God is sovereign. That's not even possible. Well, God is sovereign, and it is possible for me to screw this thing up. <laughs> it is possible for me not to come to church regularly, not to engage in the things I should engage in, not to be concerned about my own development. It is possible for me to neglect my faith. So I do not want to be the same kind of aggravated, angry, impatient, kind of controlling, whatever it is that I got going on. I want, a, I want it all gone by the end of 2017, but the only way that's happening is if I have a heart attack and I go to be with him. Or he comes, and I'd prefer that because I don't like pain. But I just don't want to be the same Phil at the end of January or at the end of February or at the end, I want to be a little bit more like Jesus. Do you want that? Man, that's the good stuff. Number four, God wants us to grow numerically in numbers, in numbers. And I would base this on his clear command to plant churches in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The only way to make disciples who obey all that Christ commanded and to baptize them is to plant churches. There are, I don't know, there are parachurch groups out there that try to do these things, but they don't really have a church where they come consistently and do this. The model in the New Testament is plant churches that do this, that make disciples. And so the idea of growing numerically is kind of, it's a weird area, especially for elders, because we know that that's the Lord's work, but we can't be fatalistic about it, you know, and, and just sit around waiting for Him to do it. If, if, if He intended to grow our church without any participation from us, then he wouldn't have put Matthew 28, 19 through 20 in Scripture. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day about it. It was really hysterical. And, you know, and there, like I said, there's mixed feelings about it, you know, and I'll tell you how we get there in a moment. But, you know, it's like, okay, look, dude, your house is on fire. Are you going to sit down and pray that the Lord puts out the fire? Or are you going to get up and grab a hose and start spraying on it and call the fire department and all that? Well, of course I'd get up and blah, blah, blah. It's the same principle, you know. Now, it, it's not, it, it wouldn't be wrong to say that, yeah, I'm just going to sit around and wait for God to do it. Now, he could bring in a rain cloud and do whatever he wants. He can do it. But, you know, it's the idea of being fatalistic is very, very deadly. And, you know, quite frankly, people in, in my theological camp tend to be fatalistic on all points, especially evangelism. Well, God's already chosen people, so why bother going out and evangelizing them? This is what the Anglicans thought when they went into South Africa in the middle 1800s. And guess what? There are no Anglican churches in South Africa because they didn't evangelize. Fatalism is not of God. So God has made clear, I want churches growing numerically, and here's how you do it. You go and make disciples. Look at the New Testament model in the early portions of Acts. The church grew, and the Spirit moved, and the church grew. So we need to be, we need to have a desire, an attitude of church growth. And some of you are saying, I just like it the way it is. Well, I do too. And, and somehow I hope and pray that we can kind of continue to grow numerically and kind of keep it like it is. But if you say, I want to keep it like it is because you don't want more than 60 people in your church, you're not in line with God's Word. You are not in line with Matthew 28. 
you know? And I don't think that, you know, everything needs to change as you start to grow numerically. Well, we don't do communion anymore every Sunday. We don't do, you know, now we do 20. This is what happens. Churches compromise as they grow. We do 25-minute topical sermons because it's important. We have a lot of young marrieds, and we have to tell them how to be married. You know, we don't need to compromise on the things or change the structure of what we do as we, as we grow numerically. I pray that we do. Our church is about 50 right now, roughly. Maybe there's a little bit more than that in this room right now. I don't know. It's about 50 on average. And, and, and I, 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 I'm praying that we would be a church of 75 by the end of, of this year. Why don't you aim higher? I have been aiming higher for five years. We have gone backwards. I'm now saying, okay, Lord, how about 25 more people? You know, it used to be 250, you know, it's like, oh, man, just, let's just start small. And this is something I think that has handles that we can all take up. We're about a church of 50 right now. I'd like to see us being a church of 75 by the end of the year. How can we increase by 25 or, or any number at all? Now, I know that you're thinking, well, he's going to come up with some kind of a scheme. And no, you know, he's going to become very attractional. He's going to be running around in his underoos on McHenry with a sign pointing to the church. No, I'll probably do that when I'm older and lose my mind. Uh, but no, 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 this isn't about gimmicks or anything. Listen to what I tell you. This is, this, there's just two things I want to focus on here. It doesn't have to do with gimmicks and all that. And churches do a lot of gimmicks. They do a lot of gimmicks. And I'm not saying all gimmicks are bad, but some of them are just goofy. Here's two things that I think that we need to do as a body regularly. We need to invoke and we need to invite. Okay? Invoke is just a fancy word for pray. And notice how invoke comes before invite. We need, we need to invoke the name of the Lord, a.k.a. pray to the Lord of the harvest for an increase in regular attenders. The first thing we got to do is start praying. How many of you have actually prayed for that? I know I have till the cows come home, but I don't think all of us have done that. And I think, quite frankly, the reason why is because I've never told you to. Why am I figuring this out five years later? Man, fallen, stupid, selfish, you know? We need to begin by praying to the Lord. Lord, there are people in our community. You know, the passage I, I just kind of referenced, the idea of the Lord of the harvest wanting to send out workers because the harvest is plentiful, but there aren't enough workers to go out. The idea of the harvest are, are people out there who are going to get saved, that God has planned to save. And, and we, don't, we don't have people to go out and get them. We don't have the workers. We're short of workers, which is us. That's the text that I'm referencing. So here's the idea. Here's the way I look at that. There are people outside of our church. And I think for 2017, there's 25 of them. <laughs> it's probably a lot more. Who knows? That God has planned to do a work in their life and that they're going to end up in this church. They are. I, think it, I, I don't know if it's 25. I think it's more. Who knows? I don't know. I could be wrong. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. Uh, there you go. Like he said, there's neighborhoods all over over here. All right. Well, let's invoke first. He's already got an evangelistic plan. You see how the Lord's at work here? He's like, I'll just, I'll deny. He, you can go out. You probably go out and get a cup of coffee and go knock on doors right now. Just have him come in through the back entrance. It's kind of weird when everyone looks at him. Invoke, right? Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Lord, raise up people and bring them into our church. Or raise up people that I can identify and communicate with. And that leads into the second thing. Um, it has to do with um, inviting. Inviting, right? Inviting people. So we pray and we invite. Now, how many of you, by a show of hands and be honest, have actually invited people to come to the church. Oh, that's Every good. Day. Oh, that's good. Oh, ye of little faith. I thought it was going to be like two of you going. I knew it had been Carol. Carol's like, she's a, Carol's embarrassing. When you're out with her and you're in the grocery line or whatever, you're like just minding your business. You know, here's a pastor holding a six-pack of beer, you know. Hey, would you like to come to our church? I'm trying to hide the beer, you know, and it's a good church, you know. She's just like, she's just like invites everyone. She doesn't care. She doesn't discriminate. We just, God is good at our church, and you should come check it out, you know. And of course, most of them are like, hmm, whatever. You know, but she just does that. She doesn't. She's been doing it since I met her. 
couple of years ago. I don't know how long ago, was it, 20 years ago? Invite, just invite people to come. You know, how, how would you do that? How would you go about that? Because I was thinking about this. Because I'm always talking about from up here, you know, like, man, preach the gospel when you go out and gossip the gospel and evangelize and all that. And, and it's not that any of us in this room don't want to do that. But that's, I mean, like, if you're kind of new to this, you're not going to just, let's sit down, Fred. You know, let me articulate. Jesus died for our righteousness. You know, you're not going it, to, it's like, how do I evangelize, right? It's kind of like a fearful kind of thing. It's like, I don't, I'm not even sure if you're kind of new, like, how you would do that, you know? Well, you know what? Part Your evangelism can have to do with inviting people to the church. Because here evangelism, I, I would say that in Scripture, don't we have an example of one who plants a seed and one who waters and God causes the increase? Planting a seed is part of evangelism, and it could be as simple as, Jesus is awesome, you should come to our church. That could be kind of part of your evangelism message, if you will. So if you're not comfortable with, you know, telling everyone about Jesus and what he did, and you're worried about how you could articulate those things and all that, and maybe you're just developing or new or whatever, or just kind of shyness, you know, and whatever, and it's not my thing, you can, anyone in this room can say, you should come check out our church. It's pretty cool, you know, God's good. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I like. Th- thank you. I like Psalm 66, verse 5, which is really just so simplistic. It, and, and I think this would be a good way for you to invite people. It says, Come and see what our God has done. All you have to say to people is, Come and see. Come and see for yourself. Come and see the things that God is doing. And it says, what awesome miracles He performs for people. You know, we're not a, a charismatic church that's doing a whole lot of kind of healing kinds of things and all that. And, and you might be led to believe that God, you know, and, and whether those things are true or not and all that, that's a whole different theological discussion. And I don't even want to go there. But you might be led to believe because you come to a church where those things aren't present that God doesn't work miracles here. If you love Jesus, you're His greatest miracle. You are. I think the greatest miracle is the salvation of a sinner who can't save themselves. And and, and to me, that is a testimony to God's miraculous power. And, 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 and of course, he's working uh, even uh, beyond salvation, even his sanctifying miracles. I think it's a miracle not only that he saves us, but that he makes us like Jesus. And maybe that's a miracle that takes a lifetime and up into the resurrection, but it's still a miracle. So don't think that because we don't do things a certain way here that there aren't miracles happening here. I have seen God work miracles here, and, 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 and it has to do with somebody coming to faith for the first time or somebody getting clarity on what the faith is or whatever. I've seen God work, I don't know how many things. He, he is a supernatural God, and He is in our midst, and He is working His power in you and in this place and in this corporate body, in this body of believers. You can say, come and check out the miracles. If, if somebody comes to this church and they don't know Jesus and they come to Jesus' miracle, if somebody comes to this church and they're an addict and they're no longer an addict, miracle. If somebody comes to this church and, and they're, they love Jesus but their life is in, in disarray and all these things and, and over time God shapes them and reshapes them and helps them and conforms them more to the image and their life looks differently, you have seen a miracle. So... Come and see the awesome miracles that God performs for people. That's a great way to invite. Now, just be careful because they might immediately think that, what, what does that mean that God works miracles? Well, I just gave you some examples because they might have some other idea of what that would look like. Okay? I'm going to work on having some small invite cards made, just like business card size. A size that are just really simple. They just say like something like you're invited and they have our information on the back. And it could be that you just give that to a friend or to a neighbor or put it on someone's door or something like that. It's real economical. I would say try to interact with people verbally, but 
That's also something, I mean, people are going to ask you, okay, where's your church at? It's right here. Here's the website. Here's the address. Here's our meeting time. You know, I think it'll just be helpful, but we've got to build a regular pattern for this year into our lives of invoking, seeking the Lord for growth, and then going out and inviting. And, and I don't think that if we engage in those two things, I don't think 25 will be trouble at all. I don't. I just, I can't help but believe it. Growing RHC numerically should be a high priority for all of us. And I know that it's tough because you like things the way they are and it's easier to do this and that, but we want more and more people in our community to come to know Jesus, do we not? And I know that sometimes you pick up church transfers and stuff like that, it happens. But sometimes people are at a church for a long time and they really don't even know the Lord. And then they come to your smaller church or whatever and they start hearing the gospel in a way they never have and they're like, whoa! So don't discount people coming from other churches. But my goal is not to suck people out of other churches. I want to reach people that, you know, I don't know. I want to reach anyone, but primarily that they don't know Jesus or they have very little church experience or maybe they even have bad church experiences and we can kind of love them back, you know. So good stuff. But as I said, warning, it's not going to happen by osmosis. If you want your house to not be on fire, call the fire department, grab a hose, right? If you want the church to grow, pray and invite. You have to work. We have to work. Okay, well, we'll get that done. Now, I'm just going to ask you politely, just <laughs> until the end, because I know you're, I, look at you. You're so pumped up for Jesus right now, you're about to blow out of the chair. And we want pumped up people that are thinking, so just continue to listen, and then after that, you can give me the address to that place. Resolution three, God wants us to give in 2017, right? So we covered gathering, we covered growing, and now we're talking about giving in 2017. And this is the part where everyone's like, dude, that was just great. I love those first two points. Oh, now he's going to talk about giving, you know? Oh, man, here's the thing. I don't like the giving thing. Well, let me tell you what. I'm going to give you... I'm going to give you, and I'll just start by saying this. I think we've got a generous church. Yeah, and, um, and I think that most people here participate in giving, and some more than others. But the point is, is that most people, the higher, higher percentage are actively involved in giving. And so I'm not telling you something beyond what most of you are already doing. And my intention is not to, to get everyone else in alignment, to get more money or any of that. I'm not thinking like that at all here. I just believe that God wants us to think about gathering, growing, and giving in 2017. So I want to give you five principles for giving, and I think this will be helpful because anytime I ever go back and look at these things, the biblical principles for giving, it's just really, really helpful because sometimes I just kind of do my own thing or whatever, and sometimes I'm not always right about that. Number one, God wants us to give firstly, firstly, and I would say to Him, okay? Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 illustrates this really well. Honor the Lord. How do you do that? With your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Here the idea is that if you give, if you give back to God, He will give you more and more and more. As you continue in your giving, He'll continue to give you more and more and more. It, it's, it's a stewardship issue, really. You know, if... if if God has given you this to work with and you are in the regular habit of giving some of that back to him, and an Old Testament model would be 10%, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, oh, it's legalistic to say, well, it's, I think it's a good starting point. But if you do that, if you get in the habit of doing that, giving to him, he gets, he, it's not a reward. He just gives you more to manage so that you can give more and do more. Pretty amazing. But the point here isn't so much as that. It's, it's the idea of giving to him first. It's the idea of giving him to him first. In Israel, the firstborn sons were, belonged to him, and the firstborn male cattle belonged to him. And, you know, it's the idea of dedicating right up front. Like, if you have an income, any kind of income, no matter what the dollar amount is, we don't even have to talk about dollar amounts. When you get that paycheck in your hand, you should be thinking. In fact, I think you got to be thinking before that. But literally, when you look at that paycheck or that retirement check or whatever it is that you get, you... The first thing ought to be the Lord. He ought to be on your mind. Not, well, I got to pay this and I got to pick up groceries and I got to do all this and I'll do that. You got to learn to think 
about God first in all things, especially when it comes to your giving. Now, some would say, okay, so I can't think of God first because the state has already taken money, so the state comes first. Well, that might be true that the state has taken its cut first, and I'm hoping that cut goes down with this new administration, but you can still think in terms of giving to God first by going right to the gross total and giving to Him before you even give to the state. That's the way I do it. You know, that's the way I do it. It doesn't make me a better person or anything like that. It's just that I refuse to let the state get from me first. And no matter what, if I refuse it in a total way, then I go to jail, right? So I don't do that. I don't say, they're not getting anything from me, you know? I mean, I'm tempted to do that, but, you know, no, I, they get theirs right up front. I can't control that. But when I get my check, I say, ha ha, I can take that total amount and I can give back to God before you even got it. And I do that because I want him to have from me first and not just first, but my best. I don't want to give God some sloppy end thing or I don't want to work through my finances and then I left a little for you, God. That's not giving to God firstly. The way that you give to him firstly is when you get your money you, you think of God first, and you determine between you and Him what you're going to give, and you give that to Him right up front before you do anything else. And some of you might be thinking, well, that might leave me short. That's not what this proverb says. We're not supposed to... We don't have a spirit of timidity and fear. We're not supposed to worry. God takes care of the, the birds of the air. And sometimes we look at our check and say, well, I know I have X amount of dollars to do this, and we don't give anything to God. Not only do we not do it first, we don't give anything to Him. And it's based on fear. We're not to be fearful about these things. Now, here's, here's, a, here's a point. Think of it like this. If I say, God, I want you to be number one in my life, and this is something that probably every Christian says at least once in their walk, And probably every New Year's they say this again because they realize he wasn't first in 2016. This year he's going to be. My resolution is to make him number one. But if we say, I want you to be number one in my life, but he's last place in our budget, it's a contradiction. Straight up. You don't want God to be number one if he's not number one in your budget. Well, I make him number one in other areas. Well, I'll tell you what. You can't serve two masters. You know, you can't serve God and money. And if you're in the habit of taking care of all your business or getting all the things you want first and dealing with your things, and they're all driven by fear and compulsion and consumerism and flesh, don't even try to say that God is first in your life. Just, just give up. Just keep doing what you're doing. Or change like He wants you to change and trust Him. And it's not about percentages. It's not about any of that. I'm not talking about that. 10% I mentioned earlier, that's a great starting place. It's not, it's not wrong to think 10% because it's Old Testament. I think it's a, God has said, give to me firstly. And here's one way you can do it. Just give 10%. But think of Him first when it comes to when you get up in the morning and you know, breathe with bad breath and brush your teeth. I'm going to serve Him today. He's first today. Think of it in terms of your finances. Think of it in terms of of your marriage. Think of him in terms of being first in all things. That's what he wants. That's what he desires. That's what he commands. And, And when you realize that he's not and you begin to shift in the direction of making him first, then you are being like Jesus. You are being conformed to his image. You look like Jesus because I'm telling you, Jesus put the Father first. He did in all things, in all things. So be careful there because our flesh is powerful. The enemy is powerful. He wants us to stay as we are and to not be generous. He does not want us to put God first. He ought to be first in every area, especially our budget. And I think it's very telling that when he is last in our budget, he's not first in our life and we can't make that boast. But when he becomes first in our budget, then we can begin to say that. But we need to make sure he's first in other areas. So give to him firstly. Make him the priority. Don't do it out of fear or anything. Just give to Him. He'll take care of you. Secondly, God wants us to give proportionally. This is really big. Deuteronomy 16, 17, each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. Okay, giving proportionally has to do with giving in a way that reflects your income. 
If you, and this is gonna be a high number and maybe none of us in this room make this, but I'll just use it as an example. If you make $100,000 a year and you give $100 a year, you're not giving proportionally. If you make $5,000 a month and you give $5 every week, you're not giving proportionally. The idea here is that if you make X amount of dollars, give in a way that reflects what you give. And there's other principles to go with this, and I'll get to them, but give proportionally. Give proportionally. You know, every one of us has a certain amount of dollars to work with every month. I think most of us do in this room. Some of us are on fixed income. I get all that. I want to be sensitive. But you can still give proportionally, you know. I was talking to somebody that Carl and I know very well, and he's been a longtime member of the Catholic Church and all that. And he was blown away when I never told him exactly how much I give, because I don't like to tell people that. It's like you don't want the right hand to know what the left hand's doing, right? You see that principle? I don't go around boasting about that. That kind of would nullify the gift. I may as well keep it and go buy something and be a fool. But he could not fathom the idea that I gave a, a high amount. He didn't have the number, but I just, he was talking about what he gives, and I was like, 20 bucks a week. I know how much you make. You know, and he's like, I feel like I'm doing my part and I'm being generous. You know, I think the majority of people that attend church are on that same wavelength. They think that just, I just put my five bucks and I put my 10 bucks and I'm helping the church, you know, or whatever. It's not proportional. Unless your income is $100 a month, then $5, you know, or whatever per week or whatever would not, it would be only be proportional if your income's that low. So again, not percentages here, but proportionally. You know, every one of us has a bit of an income. Uh, we have some kind of money to work with. Is it wise uh, to give to God first? Yes. If you, let's say you, make, let's say you bring home $1,200 a month because you're on a fixed income. I don't think it's wise for you to give $1,100 a month to the church. <laughs> Obviously, it would catch the elders' attention. They'd be like, whoa, what's going on here? And then we would have to supply you with groceries, and we'd have to turn around and take the money so you could live. That's not proportionally either. You can go low that's not proportionally, and you can go too high that's not proportional. You know where you're at. You know what you need, but make God first and give in such a way that reflects your income. Let's get out of this. If we have the mindset, and I know many in this room do not, but let's get out of the stereotypical um, nationwide mindset of I put five bucks in and you make $6,000 a month. Are you serious? That's not proportional. That's way under. You're not thinking through this, or maybe it's because you don't know. So proportional giving is important. It's in Scripture. And this is really important, too. Number three, God wants us to give cheerfully. Well, Pastor Phil, I make 100 grand a year, and I can give $5 a month cheerfully. Yeah, but you're not giving proportionally. Or first. Yes, I did. I took it right off. That one back. You know, God wants us to give cheerfully. He loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one of you must give what he has decided in his heart. This is something between you and the Lord. You don't go to an elder and you can talk about that to get wisdom and all that, but you don't want to have somebody else determine your number. You figure that out between you and the Lord. You make sure it's first. You make sure it's proportional. And you should be able to do it cheerfully, which means not out of compulsion. A lot of churches today are pounding their people for money. And I think a lot of those gifts are given just out of, if I don't do it, or there's the whole guilt thing, or there's the false theology of, like another friend I know who told me, it's amazing the way it works. I put, he, treat, he literally treats the offering like a cash register or like an investment portfolio. He literally told me, I put 200 in that week, I get 400 back. God's not an investment portfolio. Now, that's not to say that he can't do that, but we don't want to think of our giving in terms of I give so I can get. We want to think in terms of I give because I realize what Jesus has done for me and I want to cheerfully give a good first proportional gift back to him. Okay, so cheerful is what he wants. Not reluctantly or it even says this, not reluctantly like, you know, the guy who goes to put it in there and he's like hanging it in the hole or whatever and he won't let it go and then his wife has to come over and start peeling off fingers, you know, Right? That's reluctantly, like you shouldn't be going to the offering time, I don't want to do this. You ought to be saying, I can't wait to do this, right? And not under compulsion. One of the things that we wanted to avoid as a plant was talking about money and all that, like regular, because we didn't want to propel any kind of compulsion, but we also realize it's, it's not been the right way to do it, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But you know, we don't want compulsion. We don't, I, God doesn't want compulsion. He doesn't want reluctancy. He wants cheerful giving. 
He wants first giving to him. He wants proportional. He wants you to be happy about it and to give with a spirit and attitude of joy. You know, that's what he wants, and that's how it should be. And it only comes when you realize what's been done for you and, and, and the tremendous debt that Jesus paid on your behalf. When you start reflecting on him, and you're grow- these things work together, don't they? When you're growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus and in love, then that's going to impact your giving and all that, your understanding. So all of these things dovetail. Okay, four, God wants us to give consistently, Okay. 1 Corinthians 16, 2a, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. Now, I know in context, Paul was raising funds for the church at Jerusalem, but it's okay to draw out of this text, it's not wrong to do that, a principle in consistency in giving, okay? So, you need to determine between you and the Lord and your spouse or, or whoever is involved in your circle how to give consistently. It might be once a month. It might be once a week. It might be bi-weekly or something like that. But consistent giving is something that the Lord's looking for here. He wants us to do it regularly. He does. And you know what? When we don't do that regularly, it has a, it has a pretty profound impact on the finances of the church. And sometimes, like if you're at a big church with, where my buddy pastors, he was telling me people lose their jobs and things like that just because people keep forgetting to give. It's insane. You've you got to be consistent with this thing. I, I literally, if you do it every week, show up with an attitude of, I'm going to worship him this way. If you do it every other week, I'm going to show up with my money and worship him in this way. If you do it once a month, some people do it once a month. It's okay. It's still consistent. Well, I give once a year. That's consistent. Well, it could be, but now let's talk about the proportion, <laughs> right? I, I, don't, I don't trust myself to give once a year. I'd have a whole lot of spending money, Right? It'd be a huge gift, and I'd be like, oh, man, the temptation would be so great. No, 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 I'm just going to, I want to get rid of it quickly. I don't want to let the night go down on this. I've got this gift. I've already figured it out. It's first. It's proportional. It's cheerful. I do it consistently. I want to just get to, I want to come down here and tithe when there's nobody here, right? I just feel like it's safe if I put it in there because I know how bad the temptation is here to be selfish, to rob from God as it talks about in Malachi. Give consistently, weekly, bi-weekly, once a month. If you go beyond that, it sounds weird, but then you've got to deal with higher numbers and all that. I don't know how that works, but I'm not going to argue with anyone if they do give once a quarter, but it needs to be proportional and all that stuff. And I think it really does help. It does help to give consistently and regularly, like within the month. It just does, because we have monthly expenses, you know, we have power and heat and these things that have to be taken care of. So some of us forget our offerings pretty regularly. I, I know it happens uh, at my house, you know, and, uh, and so we need to, we just forget sometimes. We forget to bring it. Oh, it's on, the, it's on the nightstand, you know. You write checks at the nightstand, you know. How did we forget that, you know. Or you forgot to write the check. I was talking to somebody earlier. You forgot to write the check this morning. What are you doing, you know. Um, believe it or not, that actually has an impact because bills are due at certain times. Things have to be met at certain times. So consistent. Build it in as a discipline and as an act of worship. And then lastly, five, God wants us to give comprehensively. Comprehensively, okay? So giving comprehensively basically means to give in more than one way. And at RHC, we like to use the three T's, right? Time, right? God wants us to give our time. I love Galatians 5.13 in relation to this idea here, for you were called to freedom. Brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but uh, through love serve one another. The idea here is that God wants us in 2017 to set aside time for the body of believers, that we would serve one another, that we would build one another up in love. So time is one way that we can give at this church. We can give of our time. Uh, B, God wants us to give, what's the other T? Talent. 1 Peter 4.10 is great with this, as each has received a gift. That's a spiritual gift. That's something that you can use to build up the body of Christ. Everyone who's a Christian has one. Some of us need to figure out what it is, but we all have them, and we can help you figure it out. And he says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The idea here is that you've been given some kind of a spiritual gift that can help other believers, and it's a matter of stewardship. God wants you to use that time. He wants you to set aside time to use that talent, that gift to build up his body, to encourage 
the body. And that doesn't always mean that it happens on a Sunday morning in a kid's ministry or whatever. We should be doing these things all the time throughout the week. But I like the idea of having a focal point each week where we can come together and use these things too as we serve one another in this corporate context. So time, talent, and then God wants us to give our treasure. Now, treasure just represents um, our money, and we've already covered that. Now, I do want to talk to you just briefly uh, that the elders and I have changed the way that we are going to do the offering for now on, okay? And let me give you the rationale for why, because some of you might be wondering why, and Mike said something earlier that might have caused you to think, hmm, what's going on here? Um, First of all, I want to come out by saying that I have never, ever, ever had a problem since I've been a Christian with the church taking offerings and doing it in its various ways. I I would call it the mechanism. I've never had a problem with that. What I have had a problem with in the past is perceived stewardship issues where maybe a church spends a lot of money on things after the offering and all that, and it's like, do we really need all this stuff? So I've I've had trouble with that, and maybe sometimes that's my issue, but I've never had a problem with taking an offering. I have had a problem in the past, too, I would say, with making your entire morning about that. And some churches talk about money from front to back and in between, and I think it's ridiculous. So, um, but here's the deal. Here's my conviction, and I've been wrestling with this for, for some time, and now I'm able to articulate it. We worship the Lord every week as individuals in our families or wherever, right? We're to be living lives of worship. We're to do all things under the glory of God, it says in Scripture. And so we are worshipers by nature and at all times. You know, if, and, and I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm not saying that we're all really good at that or that I'm a pro. I, I would say that I do better when I'm with you when it comes to worshiping the Lord uh, than I do when I'm alone, that's for sure, or maybe with others. So, but what I'm saying is that we are worshipers at all times. So we don't become worshipers when we show up on Sunday. But let me tell you what we become when we show up on Sunday and become worshipers. We become corporate worshipers. We're worshiping together now. We're doing something that's kind of unlike what we do during the week, right? You might worship the Lord in your house with your kids and sing a song, whatever it is that you're doing. I don't know what your worship looks like, looks like outside of that, but there's something unique and distinct about what we do every Sunday. We worship the Lord in a similar fashion to how we do offline, but we come together to do it as a corporate body. And what do we do at this church? We have certain things that we engage in that are worshipful activities. We have fellowship that happens before and after the service. That can be worship. Uh, We sing songs together. That is us singing, lifting up our voices. That is worship. We take communion together. That is a, a way for all of us together to remember what Jesus did and to celebrate what he did together. We listen to the scripture read. We hear a sermon together and study and all that. For five years that we've been around, in in February it'll be five years, I believe, for five years that we've been gathering, we've done all of those things together. We've worshiped the Lord together through those things. There's one thing that we've never done together, and that's give. I don't like it. I don't like the fact that out of all this time, the whole purpose for us on Sundays is to come together to worship the Lord, and there's one thing, there's one component that we don't do together, and that's our giving. I don't like that. I, it just, I, I'm not saying you're wrong, and I'm not saying you haven't been worshiping the Lord because you can come in and put your money in the box and wor- you're worshiping. You're doing it out of worship. I'm not saying it's not worshipful, but it's not corporate. It's not a moment in our service where we all honor and worship the Lord together through that moment of offering and giving. And I tell you, it just began to strike me. I thought, why do we have, why did, how did I come up with this? And I think it's because I was responding to the overload of that, you know, or whatever. But I just don't like the idea that we have this one thing that is not part of that. And I'm not saying it's not worshipful, but it's not corporate worship. It would almost be like us going into, every one of us breaking up and going into our own little sound booth and singing worship songs to ourselves. We would never do that. That would be goofy. I mean, you'd just be in there singing. What is he doing? He's worshiping the Lord. We came together so he could go in that room and worship. To me, it's equivalent to that. You know, it's like, that's not corporate worship. We have to sing the songs together. We lift our voices together. And so I've been saying, we've got to to introduce a time during our service where we can do this together, where we can do it together. Does it make sense? It does, doesn't it? Do I want it to become this bohemia thing that, that is out front 
And, and you know, and, and it's all we talk. No, 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 no. It's not about that. It's not about increasing numbers. It's not about any of that. It is about aligning our entire service on Sunday with doing it together. Everything. I don't want anything that we do here together to not be together. That's the way I'm looking at it. That's what the Lord revealed to me throughout the last week. So does that, I mean, I think it makes sense. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you can't keep doing what you've been doing? No, you can keep doing the way you've been doing. I'm not going to take the box out. You know what I mean? You can keep doing it the way you've been doing. If, if you don't, for whatever reason, agree or you see something differently, I'm not going to fight anyone on this. Maybe you're an online giver. You know what I mean? And you do it that way. I don't think we have many, but maybe you do it that way. And that's kind of for the modern era, right? Or the postmodern era. Well, you can keep doing what you do. I'm just telling you what I want to do is I want to pause to worship the Lord through that corporate act of giving the gifts. And no, it doesn't need to be some weird thing where everyone's looking at each other. Oh, he didn't put nothing in. And we need to be thinking weird like that. You know, no, no, let's not think like that. Let's give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Let's believe the best about one another because you know what? Just because the person next to you doesn't put something in the bag doesn't mean that they're not giving. They might do it online. They might have put it in the box for some reason. So let's think the best. I don't want it to become some weird thing where we start testing each other like, you know. And maybe if you notice with somebody over time that they never put into it, I don't know how you would address it, but you could say, you know what? I just like to give this way. What's your input on that? Well, I just don't give. Okay, there's a discipleship moment. It's not my responsibility to make sure that, to disciple everyone here. I'm trying and the elders are trying, but you know what? We're all responsible to make disciples. And so sometimes we've got to ask those questions or whatever. What's going on, you know? And it might be weird. It might be awkward to talk about it, but it's a good idea. We want to make sure that everyone is seeking the Lord and that we're worshiping the Lord together. And I think it'll help to bring that into alignment.